Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to Agrac. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a fantastic show for you today. I have with me Dr. Jimmy Turner, who is a regional anesthesiologist and the incoming fellowship director for the regional fellowship at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And interestingly, he's also a blogger at thephysicianphilosopher.com, where he teaches physicians how to use financial independence to battle and prevent burnout. He's really an expert on this. He's also launched a new podcast called Money Meets Medicine, and he wrote a book called The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Fin to Personal Finance. So he's really an expert on this. And you know, while we have done some stuff on the show before about personal finance, he's Jimmy's take really is looking at this and how it relates to burnout and how knowing some of this stuff and learning about it can really help prevent burnout. And I thought that was really fascinating and wanted to bring him on the show. And I am so grateful that he is here. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jed. Appreciate having me on. So you are, as I said, a regional anesthesiologist, and you've gotten really interested in this intersection of personal finance and burnout. You've even started a course at Wake Forest for medical students on the topic. So tell me a little bit and tell our audience a little bit about how you became interested in this. Obviously, you know, going from being a clinically trained anesthesiologist to getting very involved in this non-clinical, um, but really interesting kind of extracurricular piece. Yeah, it's a great question. So we actually recently launched what we're calling FLARE, the Financial Literacy and Resilience Education Curriculum at Wake. Uh, the first class uh, just happened. Uh, so it's a 10-week course, happens on Tuesday evenings, and around 50% of the fourth-year med students signed up for the class in the first year. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. But how I got here is, um, is an interesting question. So I had a really tough upbringing when it comes to money. So my, my experiences with personal finance and money in general were, were pretty poor. So I went through bankruptcy as a kid when my dad lost his job as a nuclear engineer mm. uh, when I was in, uh, in grade school. And so, you know, I went one holiday season pretty much getting everything I wanted to the next where I got very little. And so, you know, my parents, they were well-meaning, well-intentioned, but like many doctors, didn't have a lot of financial literacy. And so they liquidated their 401k, which would have been protected in the bankruptcy. They racked up six figures of credit card debt. And that's kind of how my journey started. And I continued to have very little financial literacy through medical school. And, and actually, when I was a third-year medical student, the very end of my year, uh, we had our first kid, and um, a buddy of mine in class was you know, the brother of an insurance agent. And I didn't know anything about this back then. So I, I approached him for term life insurance, and uh, which was fortunate in and of itself. But uh, he said, yeah, great, we can get you that. But wh what about disability insurance? You should probably get that too. And I said, well... You know, I don't really have an income to protect. I'm not, I don't know a ton about this back then. So uh, I said no a few times. He talked me into it, not knowing that he was going to earn a commission off of me by selling me this product. Right. And what ended up happening is I have an essential trimmer I take propranolol for. And so I got flat out denied uh, by Northwestern Mutual when I was a uh, end of third year, beginning fourth year medical student. And for those that don't understand how uh, disability insurance works, that ended up being a big deal because there's often a guaranteed issue issued policy in training that doesn't require a medical history or a medical exam. 
uh, or any laboratory work. And the only stipulation is that you can't have been denied before. And yeah. so because I got denied as a student who had no business applying for DI back then, I, to this day, cannot get personal disability insurance. And so, you know, following that was several other mistakes. And, you know, I forbeared on my loans for five years. Uh, the group that my medical school brought in to talk to us was uh, like three years into training. The CEO of that firm got thrown in jail for fraud. So that mm-hmm. was the example, you know, and, and I had really bad interactions with the financial industry. So I started wanting to learn about the stuff myself during my fellowship. And that led me to talk to residents and medical students and find out that there's a huge desire to learn this stuff. And despite all the great blogs and podcasts that are out there, there was still a really big need. So I started the Physician Philosopher um, blog and, you know, more recently, the Money Meets Medicine podcast to kind of help fill in that that financial literacy gap that exists. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important area. And I love that you shared those personal stories. I think so many physicians, maybe not quite as, as significant early on as you did, but, you know, have struggled. I, I know, and I've shared this before, sure. that my uh, program um, also brought in some company and that company, uh, when we signed up and paid them to my wife and I to kind of handle our stuff, um, basically, not basically, they did cost us a year uh, where we were not in a payment plan that qualified for a public service loan forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. It was an entire year lost because they were bumbling around. And um, while I don't know if they got thrown in jail, they certainly uh, were just a, a terribly incompetent group when it came to this. They didn't know what they were doing. And uh, what did we know? So we got sucked in. Yeah, absolutely. That's a common experience, actually. And, and even more common experience, to be honest with you, is, uh, you know, having financial advisors out there that work with doctors. And it's obviously a niche that people love to work in because we're high income earners uh, that know very, very little about student loans. And so, you know, I think we'll dive into that later. But it, it's I think what your experience was is, is actually pretty common. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, I mean, there's obviously a lot uh, here we could talk about. And we've talked, uh, I, I've covered on some other episodes, things like, you know, kind of the public service loan forgiveness program and why that's so important and all that. But but what I love about uh, your work is you really focused on uh, this relationship between finance uh, finance and burnout, personal finance and burnout. So tell me a little about that. What What is the relationship uh, between finance and burnout? Yeah. So I think the best way to answer that is actually to, to tell a pretty common story uh, that I think a lot of doctors experience, which is that you know, they sacrifice their 20s or 30s to you know, achieve their medical degree, to get great training, to become a great uh, physician. And then what happens is that during that time, they're sacrificing time with family and friends. They go into six figures of debt. The average is now $200,000 know, for the average graduating medical student, and that compounds during training. And so during their residency training, many of them get burned out. Uh, we know that you know, many of them get morally injured, if you prefer that term. And Mm -hmm. all of that is spent looking at the light at the end of the tunnel of becoming an attending physician and making a paycheck that's finally worth the struggle and the hassle and all of that time you spent um, in your 20s and 30s pursuing this career. And what happens is they finish, they become an attending physician, and then they find out that 44% of attending physicians are burned out too. And so it doesn't really change. And the difference is that they now have a very large paycheck. And so what they do is they jump on the hedonic treadmill and try to purchase things to make themselves happy. And unfortunately, uh, studies, you know, behavioral finance studies have shown that buying things doesn't actually make you happy. So they buy the house, they buy the car, the private school for the kids. And while all those things aren't in and of themselves bad, uh, they end up trapping people in this lifestyle that they now live paycheck to paycheck despite earning a very high income. And that burns them out even more. And so, you know, they, they bought these things in an attempt to deal with the burnout they already had and, and then 
two years, three years, five years, 10 years later, they find out that it actually just made it worse. And, and we know this is, is borne out in studies because, you know, the Medscape survey, which is probably the biggest one that happens every year, 15,000 doctors, 44 to 50% of them are burned out. And we know that despite the causes that are listed there, right? So they, they talk about lack of administrative support, non-physician tasks, EMRs, you know, you name it. And money is never mentioned as a cause, but when those people in the surveys are asked, what would fix your burnout? They always say, well, I want to get paid more. And that's a fascinating thing. Like, wh why would that happen? Well, two reasons. The financial literacy in the physician community is not very high because no one's ever taught us. And the second thing is that they feel like money is the one thing they can control. Like, they can't control their administrators. They can't control the, you know, EMR that they have to use. But they can control their paycheck and where that money goes. And so uh, I think there's a financial literacy gap. And instead of using that money, which is a double-edged sword, to make their situation better by making smart financial decisions, they oftentimes use it to make it worse. And so that's kind of how the, the two interact, at least in my mind. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think you're right that people both feel like this is something they could control and also think, as you've kind of hinted at, that you know, spending, having more money and then spending more money will make them happier. And yet there's all kinds of data out there that after a certain threshold, right? And I forget yep. exactly, but I think it's an income of something, you know, something like $70,000 a year or something relatively right. low. Um, you know, happiness does not go up. So it's, right. it's not this idea that if I could only get paid more, I'd be happier, you know, is clearly uh, false and um, it's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I, I agree. And actually, that's, that's something I taught in my first lecture. So that number is 75,000 to 115,000, depending on where you live. So obviously, if you're in Palo Alto or New York or Chicago, it's probably closer to 115. Right. If you're in Salem, where I am, it's 75. And your, your happiness plateaus after that point. And, and I think that's an important point to drive home to trainees is that you know, you're going to earn fifty-five to sixty-five thousand dollars in residency, which isn't far below that number, um, and that's ac actually at least or above the median income for our country. So, um, you know, despite looking forward to that attending paycheck, you're actually making the median income as as a resident, uh, and, and that's a tough thing to swallow, but it's true. Right. No, absolutely. And so, how this is clearly a huge issue, and you've cited right the burnout rates for trainees and practicing physicians, uh, you know, or as you said, the moral injury rates uh, mm -hmm. is another term that's that we use sometimes, you know, these are incredibly high. It's a huge problem. And at least some of it, as you said, is tied uh, potentially to this kind of misunderstanding or lack of education around personal finance and the way to deal with that in a healthy way. So how do we approach dealing with it? How can physicians build financial confidence in a way that will potentially help reduce burnout? Yeah, so I always break this down into two different concepts or ways of thinking of it, two different constructs. One is the individual solutions and one's the systemic solutions. So the systemic or systematic solutions are going to require uh, our medical system, our medical education system, getting behind this problem and really supporting it to create uh, practice management and personal finance curriculums at medical schools, residencies, fellowships to help deal with some of the financial literacy issues that exist. And that will allow doctors to, you know, put down the shovel, you know, so they buy all these things like just if they would start by not inflating their lifestyle to an unreasonable extent. And I usually recommend people use something I like to call the 10% rule where you take the difference between your final paycheck as a trainee and your first paycheck as an attending and uh, the post-tax difference. And you take 10% of that and you spend it on whatever your heart desires. If you want to, you know, go buy a country club membership or, you know, finance a car, I honestly don't put a box around it, but the other 90% should go towards wealth building efforts so that you don't get trapped in that lifestyle. 
And, you know, so there are some individual solutions that you can have and some, some uh, systematic solutions that are necessary. But I recommend everybody to get a financial literacy base by reading some good books. And some that I recommend I often buy for my trainees are, are How to Think About Money by Jonathan Clements. And um, there's actually even a free PDF by Bill Bernstein, who is a retired neurologist turned financial advisor. It's called If You Can. So if you just Google If You Can PDF, um, you can find that. And those are great things to like start your base. And then after that, you have to maintain, it's like a, almost like a CME. It's a financial CME to maintain yep. literacy. And that, that, that's going to require listening to podcasts or reading books or you know blogs or what have you. But I think once you deal with the financial literacy issue, you're going to find that a lot of this gets better because people finally have options. You can go part-time. You can consider other things that may decrease your, your work burden or the burnout that you're experiencing at work. But until you have those options, it's really, really tough and you feel trapped. So that's kind of the, the place that I start with that conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you must uh, have people, you know, you're advising uh, this way and come to you and say, well, look, you know, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I could get hit by a car crossing the street tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If I put all my money into my 401k or my 403b and, you know, I don't actually, you know, take the trip I want to take with my family or I don't, you know, take my wife out to, or my husband out to eat at the restaurant that, you know, we, we've been wanting to go to that's really expensive, you know, I uh, I'm deferring, you know, don't, they'll say, I'm sure I'm, I'm deferring gratification. Um, but what if I never get to, to have the gratification, right? So how do you, what do you tell those people? Yeah. So I think that's actually a great point. So I think that when you finish training, that is the most crucial time, uh, for your financial life. So those first two to five years, depending on your situation, how much debt you have. Um, that's why I recommend the 10% rule for that period. But Mm -hmm. now that my, my wife and I have paid off $200,000 in 20 months and increased our net worth by half a million dollars in, in a couple of years, um, we absolutely don't follow that rule anymore. And in fact, Ramit Sethi from, I will teach you to be rich, bit of a controversial figure, but I believe wholeheartedly in, in one thing that he teaches, which is to, um, spend lavishly on the things that you love. But in order to do that, you have to cut mercilessly on the things that you don't. And so you have to spend some time figuring out what really matters to you. So if experiences, travel, you want to go to Europe or maybe eating out every week at a nice fancy restaurant is your thing, that's fine. But you can't do all of those things and not save for your 401k. So I'm a big believer in, in spending lots and lots of money on the things that you really enjoy. But that has to happen after you've already paid yourself first. You put your money into your 401k, the 457, you know, you've, you've done the backdoor Roth IRA. You've taken care of your annual savings goals or your monthly savings goals. And then after you've paid your future self first, you enjoy what you have left, which should be more than enough to, to put with a physician income to put uh, quite a bit of money into, into this stuff. So I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't live like a pauper. I just, you know, I just bought a Peloton and a trampoline for my kids this Christmas and really let the, the purse strings loose. Um, but that's because we've, we've got enough cash flow coming in because the only debt we have now is our mortgage. So, um, because we paid the price early and kind of put the work in for a couple of years after training, we're now able to spend lavishly on things and, um, and still save over six figures a year. So, um, you just got, it has to happen in the right order. Uh, but I don't want you to miss out on your life and I don't want you to miss out on experiences. And that is never a goal of mine. Cause you could walk out and get hit by a truck, uh, you know, the, the moment you leave work and we all see that in medicine. So, uh, there's, there's some middle reasonable ground between YOLO, you only live once and, you know, hoarding everything and, and never enjoying life. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, and I would completely agree. Um, 
Let me ask you one thing. I want to get to your um, curriculum and talk about that a little bit uh, that you've developed for the med students. But first, I just want to ask, you mentioned, you know, kind of uh, that you and your wife paid down your loans pretty aggressively. And so I think one, um, I certainly have struggled with this question. I think probably a lot of folks do, uh, a lot of doctors do, which is I have a choice. I can absolutely pay my loans down aggressively or I can pay the least possible because in theory, after 10 years of being in an appropriate plan, and as long as I work for a, a nonprofit like, you know, a, a big academic medical center, I should get what's left forgiven. So, you know, is that, should pe- is that a, a mistake? Do you think people should not kind of count on this public service loan forgiveness and instead should just pay down aggressively? Or, you know, is it, is it hard to say because it depends on so many factors? Yes, I guess I make a couple of comments. I know you had Justin Harvey on previously, and uh, he talked about student loans and management. And and Justin's actually someone that I highly recommend to pretty much any anesthesiologist or pain doctor. He's a fantastic guy, fee-only planner, and I don't recommend very many people. You'll find on my website there's like a list of five. Yeah, Um, Justin is great. Totally agree. He's a wonderful human being and, and a great financial advisor if someone needs one. But um, the way that I look at this is I break it down into two things. You you split into one of two camps. Um, And this is usually based on your debt to income ratio. So if your debt to income ratio is one or less, in other words, you make $250,000, dollars a year, and your debt is less than that. That means your debt to income ratio is less than one. In that situation, I think most people probably should pay off their debt themselves. And the reason why is because if you just apply yourself, you're going to be able to get rid of that stuff in two to five years max. And, um, and knowing that, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're starting day one right now to, to hold on to that debt for 10 years, if you can pay it off in two to five. Um, now, as your debt to income ratio increases, you know, particularly of over one and a half, that's the point where it's really worth considering public service loan forgiveness. And in that situation, your, your job is to do the exact opposite. So in the first scenario, your job is to pay the most you can to get rid of your debt as soon as you can because your debt to income ratio is less than one. In the other situation, you're trying to get forgiveness. And so you know, don't hate the player, hate the game, but your job is to pay the minimum payment and have the most forgiven if you're trying to go for public service loan forgiveness. So it it depends on your situation. It depends on your debt to income ratio. And in terms of public service loan forgiveness being there, I I believe that it will be. And for a couple of reasons, you signed a promissory note outlining the forgiveness programs that exist when uh, you took those loans. And so for people that are currently in public service loan forgiveness, I find it very difficult to imagine Congress getting rid of public service loan forgiveness and not grandfathering those people in because they're going to, I mean, you have to think about who they're going to make angry if they get rid of it completely, right? I mean, you're talking about teachers, lawyers, doctors, you know, people in public service, and that's not the people that politicians want to make mad. In addition to the fact that the promissory note says that they, they're going to own up to that promise. So I I don't think that, and there's been precedents where people get grandfathered into programs that, that go away. So if you're in PSLF, as long as you're filling out the employment certification form every six to 12 months and your payments are counting, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be worried about that. And if you are, do a public service loan forgiveness side fund, a PSLF side fund, where you put additional money to the side so that if the government does renege, you can pay it off yourself. And if they don't, you're that closer to financial independence and never needing a paycheck again. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right. So let me ask you a little bit more about this curriculum you've developed uh, for the medical students. So uh, sounds, first of all, the fact that uh, when you first launched it, you got 50% of the first year class to sign up is incredible. And I think really speaks to the fact that there's a lot of interest out there. Um, People want this kind of training. They want this kind of education. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's great. So what 
you know, I mean, give us a kind of an outline of what you cover over the course of that of that curriculum and uh, and how you built it. I mean, did you know, you've obviously learned a lot about this yourself. Did you pull in different resources? Do you have other people come in and give talks and collaborate? You know, how'd you build it and what does it cover? Sure. So, you know, this could be a show in and of itself, but I'll uh, try to give you the, the snippet version of it. So it's, it's a 10-week course. It happens on Tuesday evenings. And uh, I had... Dr. Tim Peters, who's one of the one of the deans of the medical school, encouraged me to create a student design team. And that was just a brilliant idea because I already had ideas for what I wanted to do. But what the student design team allowed me to do is to figure out what time of the year, what day of the week, what time of the night to have this thing. Because I wanted to, A, make sure that they could come. And B, I wanted to invite significant others, spouses, partners that, that wanted to attend because many of the topics are things that they're going to have an opinion on and want to be a part of that discussion. And so I didn't want to limit it just to the students. And in fact, we opened it up to the, the PA and the SRNA program too. Uh, they did not say yes for this year, but maybe they will for next after they, they see uh, it being successful. So it's a 10-week course every Tuesday, once a week from 5.30 to 7.00. And uh, the student design team really helped us figure out what topics to include. So those range from life planning. That's kind of the first introductory lecture, figuring out what matters most to people, which is usually not what we spend money on, interestingly. And then other topics range from student loans, investing, contract negotiations, and buying a house during residency. So it's kind of wide ranging. But one of the hardest questions I had to answer when building this was, was I going to provide every lecture myself or was I going to outsource some of this to experts in the field and then moderate their talk and attend it and make sure that it's a cohesive uh, curriculum. And so of the 10 talks, I'm only giving three or four of them. And then we have several people coming in. So um, we have Sarah Catherine Gutierrez and Justin Harvey, who I mentioned earlier, a few only planners that yep. I felt comfortable putting in front of my students. So they're going to be coming. And then Dr. Nisha Mehta from uh, Charlotte, who is uh, an expert, runs the Physician Side Gigs Facebook group. Uh, she'll be coming and talking about contract negotiations and then we have uh, uh, Larry Keller, who's going to be coming from Physician Financial Services to provide a talk on asset protection. And these are all people that I vetted. So one of the most important things that I can say, if you're going to try to make your curriculum yourself, is to involve students. Their opinions matter, and they're going to help you figure stuff out. And two, it is your job to protect them. So I vet every single talk. They send me the slides. I tell them it's for education. They're not allowed to take emails, names, solicit business in any way, shape, or form. And I make sure that the people that go in front of my students are the least conflicted financial model for, for whatever they do, whether that's insurance or uh, providing financial advice and planning. And so that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what, what we decided to do at Wake. Yeah, that sounds amazing, man. I just think that's so valuable. There's so many things I love about that. I mean, I love that you had a student design team because it's so often that, you know, people are designing courses, lectures, curriculums without ever talking to the people who are going to be taking part in it. And exactly. if you want to have something, uh, you know, if you want to get buy-in from the stakeholders, you got to involve the stakeholders in the planning. And it seems so obvious, but it's so often uh, forgotten. And so I think oh, that yeah. is wonderful that you did that. And I think is, is probably, uh, you know, speaks to the uh, reason for the even early success of getting people to sign up, because not mm -hmm. only did you have students design it, but then these students are excited about it. They go tell their colleagues, their classmates, when people get excited about it. So that's fantastic. And then I love the breadth of topics you're covering. I think it's a great balance to do some yourself, but bring in some outside experts. And, and as you said, so key that you're doing this vetting because 
What you don't want is to have a situation like you and I both suffered from where, you know, someone who carries the the supposed blessing of the uh, institution or organization comes in, gives bad advice. But the students think, oh, well, they wouldn't have let this person in if they didn't think the advice was good. So I'll do what they say. And next thing you know, people are, are really in trouble. So I love the way you're doing this. I think it's going to be a huge success. And I hope we can, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it will spread. And I hope it spreads to many places, including us. Yeah, no, and, and that's that's something I hope too. You know, I, I think that one of my dreams in my career is to help, you know, every medical school in the country have something like this. And then, um, you know, of course, in residency, the, the topics tend to be a bit different. You want to focus more on business and finance stuff because, you know, billing for anesthesia or internal medicine or surgery, those are all very different things. So the topics change a bit for practice management stuff and training. But I hope that every residency in medical school by the end of my career has something like this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn to your book for a second. So, you know, a lot of people uh, have great ideas. A lot of people, uh, you know, some subset of those people even write them, uh, write about them on a blog or, you know, Mm -hmm. have a podcast about them or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of those people uh, think at some point about writing a book, but very few actually have the wherewithal uh, and the perseverance to actually make it happen. And so tell, tell, I think the audience would like to hear, tell us a little bit about how you went about deciding to write the book and then actually kind of making it happen and, and anything you've learned from that process? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. So writing a book was actually a lot of fun for me. And, and I found as I've gotten older, you know, and trying to find what my ideal day or my ideal life looks like, and I just love creating content. And so writing the book was actually a joy for me. Um, and so I used Amazon Kindle direct publishing to publish my book. So I self-published it. And uh, I used a friend who just happened to graduate from like the number one school of journalism in the country. I just, I just serendipitously was friends with her and she edited the book for me and it, it would have been a, a shell of what it currently is if it weren't for, for her. Uh, her name's Kim Watkins. So um, she's actually married to an ED doc at, at, uh, at Wake. But I learned a lot in creating the book. And the reason for creating it, to be honest with you, like why, why do a book and a blog and a podcast and all this stuff is because different people like different mediums. And I, I experienced that myself in my own life. And so I've learned that if you just branch out into one segment, you're going to lose people that don't like that one, that one medium. And so I, I decided to write the book and, um, it was uh, something that took me, I guess, nine months to write. It's about 40,000 to 45,000 words. It ended up being 200 pages long. And the reason that I wrote it is because I wanted to have a book that followed the chronological order of becoming a doctor. And I didn't, I hadn't found a book like that. So it starts from, you know, some introductory chapters for the first three talks about just, you know, perspective and money. And then it starts as a student, a medical student who has debt and what to do with that situation and then transitions to how you should handle money as a resident and then finally as an attending physician. And uh, Because the the topics and the things that you need to learn in those different stages are different for everybody um, and it's different for the different stages. And so I created the book that I would have wanted to read when I was a medical student, resident, or early career attending. And that's really the the focus or the, the target audience of the book. So I learned a lot creating it. Uh, it's been a huge passion of my writing podcast and creating content. So I, I had a lot of fun, but um, it was self-published in the end. That's great. Uh, and so in case there are folks who, who are interested in thinking about this, you know, how, I mean, you don't have to go through all the details, but how does this work? Do you, if you do want to self-publish using Amazon, do you pay them? Do you just kind of submit a file and, and then they put it up on the site and anybody who wants to buy it can buy it? How does that work? Yeah, so they have special software that you can use um, f- for this, and um, and so when you the very first thing, honestly, is just to sit down, open up Microsoft Word or you know your your document that you like to write in, whatever software that is, and just write, um, create the outline, 
write the book. And uh, if you finally get through that part and you decide that you want to publish it, um, Amazon's got some great tools for, for doing that. Uh, this, the things that are involved, honestly, you have to create artwork for the book. So um, I ended up paying a digital designer to um, or a graphic designer to create the artwork for the book. And then I would not skip editing. Um, and then really they have this, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, Jed, but um, there's a software that Kindle has, which it will take your book if you format it correctly. And there, there are online tutorials that you can follow. They're really pretty straightforward. Uh, and you put it into that program and then it formats it for Kindle and for print versions of the book. And so in terms of how it works from a um, uh, financial perspective, uh, Amazon takes a cut. So I get to keep, I think... Um, I want to say it's 60% of any paperback and a little bit less for uh, any Kindle version of the book that's purchased. Um, and so the, the pricing, this, it's why you'll notice that most uh, Kindles or Kindle books are priced at $9.99. And the reason why is because if you go above that, then, then Amazon takes even more. Mm. Uh, and so most people stop at $9.99 to, to you know, get to the maximum level that, that also still generates some income. Because at some point, it's like you, know, you put in hundreds or thousands of hours of work on a product, you'd like to, you know, help people, but you'd also like to, you know, ha- have some benefit coming back from that. Of course. And uh, so it's, it's, it's constantly a balance trying to, trying to do those two things. So that's so interesting. Okay. And you don't have to pay anything upfront to Amazon. It's only if you actually sell the books. So you don't have to pay anything upfront to Amazon, but I did have to pay a graphic designer. You have to pay to register the book. So on Bowker, uh, which is where I, I registered the book, got the license. Um, and then I had to pay an editor. So I think all told, the, writing the book and then publishing it, the cost ended up, I want to say, around $1,500. Okay. So yeah, not, not no small amount. And, and obviously, probably have to sell quite a bit to make that up. But it's good to know that that's a possibility because I do think there's a lot of people who go into medicine who, you know, may not have been bio majors. Maybe they were bio majors, but they also would like to write a book, or maybe they were English majors and they'd like to write a book, or maybe they find a separate interest like you have in, in finance or in something else and, and would be interested. So I think this is great to know that this is a possibility out there. Yep. And, and that, may, that may be one of the reasons why I decided to do that because I was a humanities major. I was a philosophy major in college. And so yeah. uh, uh, I already had a passion for, for that sort of thing. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me ask you this kind of very basic question. Should every doctor have a financial advisor? The answer to that is no. Okay. And how, how do you tell, who do you tell they should have one or not? Or how do people think that through? So I break doctors up into three groups when, when I get asked this question. So there are the do-it-yourself investors uh, and financial planners like myself. I'm never going to have a financial advisor likely. And it's because I, you know, eat, eat and sleep and breathe uh, this stuff pretty much every day. The second group is the dot the I's, cross the T's group. So those are people that they're financially literate. They actually know a really good amount about personal finance and money. But they want to make sure a professional is checking things over to make sure they're not doing anything really stupid or, you know, they're not making any mistakes. And then the, the third group, which I, I have found, honestly, to be one of the largest groups of doctors is the outsource group. So these are the people that want to outsource their personal finance, you know, tasks, just like they would for child care or lawn care or, or anything else that we outsource things to that we just don't want to have to deal with. Um, and so depending on which group you're in, the, do, the DIY people, they're probably not going to get a tremendous amount of benefit from a financial advisor. Uh, the dot the I's cross the T's group and the outsource group absolutely will. And and the problem is, is that the more benefit you get as you go down those three groups, you're also at the more risk for getting screwed by the financial industry because they are not your friend. Um, and so that's why it's so important to to work with someone that has a really 
great model that's conflicted. And so if you're in that dot the I's cross the T's group or the outsource group, the, the model that I recommend in my book, on my blog, um, and in pretty much everywhere else meets four criteria. So they are a fee-only advisor, meaning that they only make money from giving you financial plan and financial advice. They do not and cannot sell financial products like insurance products. Right. People that, can, that are called fee-based advisors. And then flat fee, so they don't use an AUM model. Um, fiduciary, meaning that they sign an oath saying they're going to put you first, which is kind of sad that I have to say that because that means that there are lots of financial advisors out there who, who don't do this or refuse to do this because they think it's not necessary. And what that really means is that they're not going to put you first. And then they, they need to have experience working with doctors because we have two very unique things about our financial life, which is the student loan debt, which I talked about earlier. Many, many advisors don't know how to deal with. And then the second one is that we go from making a median income to a very high income overnight. And if you haven't worked with people in that situation, you cannot provide them adequate financial advice. So fee only, flat fee, fiduciary, work with doctors. And if you're in that dot the I's, cross the T's group or the outsource group, I'd really recommend that because otherwise you're stuck in a situation where you may be getting bad advice and you don't know. Yeah. That's great. I think super, super nice to break it down that way. And just give folks an idea because, you know, I certainly, um, a lot of people probably don't know what's a reasonable flat fee, you know, because if people go out there and, and talk to somebody and get quoted a fee, they'll have no idea whether that's reasonable or whether they should shop around and get some some different quotes. Yeah. So I think that financial advice should be something that costs you less than $10,000 a year. I, I don't think that, and, and early on, it should cost substantially less because your situation is not complicated. So, um, you know, if you're just going to go out and get a flat fee financial plan, it's going to cost you two to $5,000. And for some people, they're going to say, well, I just want the financial plan. I'll stick to it. I know I have the financial discipline. Um, and I just want to check in with an advisor, you can actually pay them by the hour, just like a lawyer. Like you check in and you say, hey, I've got a question about my backdoor Roth and you pay him 150, 300 bucks an hour to provide you the advice, but then you're not paying them consistently throughout the year. Uh, so that, that model does exist. Um, but I think that overall, if you, if you take $10,000 a year and you compound that over a 30-year career and a 30-year retirement, your financial advisor is going to cost you somewhere over a million dollars. So that is a terrific. I mean, that's just a substantially large amount of money. And so you want to make sure that your, your advisor is providing you more value than that um, if you're going to be paying for them. But that, that generally speaking, ballpark kind of figures it's obviously different for everybody else. Great. All right. Thank you. So let's turn back for a minute to burnout. You know, it's obviously something very important to you. Um, and we've talked a little about how you kind of connect financial confidence to burnout. But I want to give you an opportunity, if there's anything else, um, kind of words of advice you have for folks out there who may be struggling uh, with burnout for any reason, whether financial or other, um, you know, what advice do you give to folks? And what would you like to say? Sure. So I, I guess the first thing to say is that you're not alone. 44 to 50% of doctors are burned out. And those numbers, some people believe are underestimates. And um, I've personally been there myself. So I, I was very burned out last year. And it was a combination of, uh, you know, working more than I wanted. And uh, I ended up having a Graves disease diagnosis, which was great. Um, so, you know, battle with anxiety and depression in the midst of burnout myself. And, and so it, it, I, I don't like the curated life that happens in social media. Like life is hard. Life sucks sometimes. And I think it's important to know that like you're not alone um, is the first thing. And then the tools that I found that were really helpful for me in dealing with my personal burnout uh, were really a couple of things. One was instituting something I like to call the hell yes policy. And essentially what that is, is that if, if someone asks me to do something and it doesn't make me want to say hell yes, I basically say no to it. Mm. And the reason for that is because there are so many opportunities out there, and at least in academics, 
people are going to keep asking you to join committees and start research projects and, and do all sorts of other things that you may not want to do that other people do. So it's not like you're saying no to things. You want to be a team player. That's not the message. The message is that there are lots of people that can do things. It doesn't have to be you. And so I started saying no to stuff and I found that really helped me a lot. Um, and so now I focus on, you know, my, my side stuff, my side hobbies, the blog, the podcast, I, I focus on my regional anesthesia research in, in adjuvants. Um, and I do my clinical work in teaching. Those are the four things that I'm really going to focus on in terms of my outside the home sort of stuff. And that hell yes policy helped me to find what was really important to me and stick to that. The second thing is um, partial fire is what I call it. So I'm not a big fan of financial independence, retire early, which is the fire acronym. In fact, I, I don't talk about it at all to my trainees um, as, as, as much as I can unless someone brings it up. But what I do believe in is finding financial success. And then once you're on a path that shows you you're going to get to financial independence early or the point at which you no longer need a paycheck, um, I think it's very, very reasonable to cut back. Now, that might be cutting back on you know certain tasks, research, committees, whatever, that might be going part-time. That might be working three or four days a week instead of working five or six. Uh, that's going to look different for everybody depending on what, how your group is structured. But what I found is that the ideal week for me is working three to four days doing anesthesia and then another two to three days doing other things. And that balance has allowed me to, to be so much less burned out. I come back to work and I'm refreshed and renewed and ready to go at it and get my research done and work with residents and teach and perform clinical work and take great care of patients. And the reason why is because I'm not working more than I want to. So finding that balance really helped me a ton. And so people can do that, but you have to make those smart financial decisions and really conquer some, some demons in the, in the, in the debt world first so that you can have those options. But, but if you use them, at least for me, I found that they were really helpful. That is great. I love those. And you know, one common thread, uh, the more people I talk to who have, been burned out and have, let's say, recovered, uh, that learning to say no uh, that you mentioned is one is a real common theme that people who have kind of been, and I think so many of us who go through medical school and residency, and we just learn to just say yes, just do it all, do more, do more. Um, and at some point, uh, a lot of people get burned out. And then some learn that they actually do still love medicine or anesthesia, whatever it is they're doing. Um, but they have to make some changes. And one of those is to learn to say no, to be okay saying no. And once they do that, they find things to be much more manageable. Yeah, I completely agree. And I found the same thing that, you know, Crispy Doc's actually another physician finance blogger, but he has this series on docs you've cut back. And I found this in my own life too, and, and, and several other people's. But when people cut back and, and get to the workload that they really enjoy, they find out that they fall back in love with medicine. So if you've fallen out of love with medicine and it's just not for you and you came into this thinking it was going to be a career, a profession, a calling, and you no longer feel that way, you might be working too much. And if you cut back, you might be surprised that like you really want to go to work, like you're excited about it, passionate about it, and, and just kind of find that vigor again for, for the field that you chose to go into when you, you had that passion in the beginning. Absolutely. I love that. All right. So let's turn to the portion of the show where we make random recommendations. Uh, so Jimmy, uh, anything to recommend to the audience, something that they should check out? Yeah. So I think that, um, w a book that I've recently read that I think was really meaningful to me, and this is particularly for any program directors out there, any residency program directors, fellowship directors, or anyone that views himself in a leadership role. I read a book by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. And um, it's just a fantastic book. And in particular, if you have trouble dealing with uh, young millennials who you know think differently than you do in a leadership position, 
this book will really help you understand how leadership transitioned over, uh, you know, decades really, and how we got to where we are. And, and, and I think it was just such a profound book. I've listened to it on, um, you know, in my, in my truck driving to work of, uh, more than once. And so it's, it's a fantastic book that I'd recommend to anybody. And of course, uh, uh, the Money Meets Medicine podcast just recently launched, so I'll self-plug that one and, and say you should check that out too. Nice. I love both of those. I will definitely check both of them out, and um, thank you for making that recommendation. So I'm going to actually start with a couple of audience recommendations, um, and I'll, I'll say why in a minute. I'm doing mine after that. But So first, mm-hmm. Sarah Engela from Germany writes to say that she recommends a German author named Benedict Wells, and specifically his book called The End of Loneliness. She says all of his works, but especially this one, are thrilling, intuitive, and capture the essence of humans and their interactions with surprising twists and turns. So really uh, sounds like a great recommendation, and uh, thank yeah. you, Sarah. And then uh, the, Tyler Jones wrote to recommend Peter Atia's podcast called The Drive. Have you heard of this at all, Jimmy? No, I haven't, actually. I hadn't either. Never heard of it. Didn't know who Peter Atia was. Turns out Peter Atia uh, went to Hopkins for his surgical residency uh, and then has uh, worked for McKinsey for a little while and has developed a practice that's really very uh, involved with longevity and thinking about longevity and then started a podcast called The Drive. So what Tyler recommended was checking this out and specifically, uh, he said, to start with the three episodes where uh, Peter interviews Matt Walker, who's the head of the... Uh, Berkeley Sleep Lab about sleep. And I was just uh, in each one. These are long form interviews. So we're talking about each episode. Each part is about two hours. So this is six, a six hour interview. And you would have thought I would never would have imagined, but I ended up listening to this thing nonstop. I just couldn't put it, couldn't turn it off. It was so interesting. And all the data for that, you, you know, I mean, I knew sleep was important, but the data connecting, you know, just even slightly reduced amounts of sleep with heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, uh, cancer, uh, emotional problems. I mean, it is unbelievable. Um, and then I've since gone on to listen to a lot of other episodes, and I just think he does a nice job of interviewing some really, really interesting guests about really fascinating topics. So I highly recommend checking that out. And the reason I wanted to do that first is because I've been so obsessed listening to this podcast that I'm going to have to also <laughs> have it be my own uh, recommendation because I, I haven't been listening to yeah. anything else lately. So I'll say that wow, um, – it is It is just really, really worth checking out. Uh, the whole podcast, some specific ones that I, uh, episodes I'll recommend uh, are one, the ones on sleep, as Tyler recommended, which are fascinating. Uh, two, uh, an interview um, about uh, MDMA, uh, so ecstasy and the therapeutic uses, especially for PTSD that, that are being, it's being put toward, really interesting stuff. And then uh, three, the interview with the author of the book, um, about uh, gene- the generic drug industry, which, uh, mm. and I'm going to tell you her name, is Catherine Eban, or Eben, E-B-A-N. Um, she wrote a book about the kind of horrors uh, of the generic drug industry uh, that are happening, the things that, you know, you, you think you're getting a drug that's, a- that's similar to um, the, gen- the brand name drug, but some of these companies uh, in India, one she talks about specifically, that are just completely faking the data they submit to the FDA, so you have no idea what's in that wow. bill. Um, so there's some really interesting stuff and I highly recommend that podcast and thank you to Tyler for pointing me in that direction. That sounds like a great podcast. Yeah, I would, I would check it out. You would love it. I think Jimmy, um, well, Jimmy, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I learned a ton just from our conversation and I know folks will too, and then they can check out your podcast and your book and your blog to learn even more. So thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jed. Really enjoyed it. All right. That was great. I, I just love these 
folks like Jimmy who get into something and, you know, totally outside of medicine and then really become an expert in it, and then we can all learn from them. So check it out on the website, com. You can leave a comment. Uh, others can learn from what you have to say. Do you have some expertise, uh, any recommendations, things people should check out, uh, anything to add to what Jimmy said, let us know. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. And, of course, we have a Facebook group for ACRAC, and you can come on there and post and join the conversation. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to make a one-time donation or a donation anytime you want, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park and to April Liu, who are doing a great job making outlines for some of the episodes, and to our intern, Kimia Cash Cooley, who is just doing an incredible job uh, in many, many ways, especially with the social media stuff. And a big thank you, as always, to Dr. Dennis Kuo, who composed our original music, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jimmy Turner, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 